Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians 5, 1 through 7. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, good morning. Welcome to Mercy Hill. My name's Brad. I'm one of the pastors here, one of the elders, and i um, so grateful that you guys are here. We were out last week on fall break, and we're glad to be back with you. Um, before we jump into today's scripture, uh, I want to share a brief update with you. Many of you know that we are part of the Soma network of churches, the Soma family of churches. That word Soma is a Greek word. We see it in the book of Ephesians that we're studying. It's the Greek word, which means the body. Um, so the body of Christ, which is actually described as the church. And we're part of this network. Uh, Jeff Vanderstelt started the network in Tacoma, Washington about 15 years ago. And he started a church that was structured around disciple-making through missional communities. And as we began planting this church several years ago, we came along beside this family of churches, and they have resourced us. Uh, several of our elders have been to Soma School 101 and 201. Katie and I, my wife, we've been in a cohort for the last two years called Soma Strong that seeks to build emotionally healthy leaders and do the work on the front end before pastors fail or burn out and try to do the work on the back end. And um, that cohort will continue prayerfully for the next couple of decades, those same 10 couples continuing to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus, meeting together a couple times a year. All that to say, we're part of this network that has resourced us very well, a family of churches that we also want to resource. And so we are helping to see a church planted in, in East Tennessee with Rusty Langford at Matthew's Table, and we've been supporting them financially for several years. And we are actually finishing up the last step in the process of becoming an official Soma Church. And there'll be an assessment team that's here next weekend. So you'll see some of our friends, uh, Shane England from Resonate Church in Nashville. And a um, little shout out back there. Like, yeah? Cousin, right? Aren't you like, yeah? So, um, and then Tim Gray from City on a Hill up in St. Louis. If Tim looks familiar... Big tall guy, just imagine him with a mustache and then think back to hoop dreams. He's the coach, 
in hoop dreams. So anyhow, those guys are just going to be here. They're going to be spending time with our elders, with our leadership team, with missional community leaders, just seeing evidence of God's grace and pointing those out to us. Um, also seeing ways that they feel like we can grow and develop um, in 2019 and over the next decade. And we, it's not an evaluation, like a teacher evaluation. It's just more uh, for them to come in and be good family to us, help us um, grow, help us see where God is already at work in ways that we might not be seeing. So we're, we're excited to have them here. Make them feel welcome next week. You'll see them, and it'll be good to spend some time with them. If you're interested in more about SOMA, you can go to wearesoma.com and see about this family of churches that we're part of. Today, in these short seven verses that we're looking at from Ephesians, you guys know we travel uh, verse by verse through the Bible, and we've been in the book of Ephesians for the last several months. And in these uh, short seven verses, there's some pretty tough um, sayings that are here. Uh, I've entitled this message, The Deeper Desire... And the big idea of this message, uh, really simply, simply put, is just that holy people are thankful people. Holy people are thankful people. And we're going to see that. We're going to see that in the midst of, of Paul offering what almost might seem like rule keeping at first. He's going to tell us to stop a lot of things. And we're actually not going to get to the point of the passage where he says, now start doing these things. We're going to push pause, and we'll have to wait until next week to see that. But we are going to see, in, in the smallest sort of way, the antidote that he gives us to counteract the sinful desires of our heart that he's pointing both the Ephesian church as well as us to stop. Now, I love the way that Paul begins this text. If you look in verse 1, I like his opening illustration. It's both an illustration and an instruction. You know, when, it, when we typically think about holy living, many of us grew up in a context where if someone taught on holiness, the message that we internalized was, stop it. Just stop it. What? All your sin, all your sexuality, your filthy mouth, all the things that he's going to talk about. Just stop it. But Paul doesn't stop at that. He at least says that, but he gives us a deeper motivation. And we see that deeper motivation even in the opening illustration. Look at verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, we are first and foremost relational beings. That sounds like a simple statement, but most Christians don't understand that. As human beings and as followers of Jesus, we are first and foremost relational beings. And that comes from the fact that we've been created by a relational God. And we've been created in His image. And He has lived in relationship. One being, three persons, in community, Father, Son, and Spirit. Not for all of time, before time even began. And because God is relational and we're created in His image, He has made us to be relational. It's very important that we understand that. We can't do the Christian life. We can't do life itself without relationships. So much so, scientists over the last few years 
have proven that babies actually have what they have described as mimicry cells. When a baby is in its first few weeks, a baby is actually borrowing the mind of its caregiver. When you look at a baby and you smile, what does the baby do? The baby smiles back at you. But when you look at the baby and you make a scared face, the baby looks at you and makes a scared face. Why? Because the baby does not yet know how to live on its own. It doesn't have a healthy, developed sense of self. It can't live by itself. And so it's borrowing the caregiver's brain. It's borrowing someone else's self in order to understand how to do self. Now, a little more personal illustration of that. Think of a two or a three-year-old. If you haven't had a two or a three-year-old, think of Matt and Tiffany's family. They have plenty of three-year-olds. Think of all three of their three-year-olds. Um, a two or three-year-old loves to imitate. I can remember that uh, our oldest son, Riley, would love to imitate. I, we have pictures of I'm cutting grass in the front yard of our house over our first house off of Mount Moriah the years ago. 17 years ago, 15 years ago. And Riley has his little lawnmower and he is cutting right beside me. So I'm cutting and he's cutting. I, we have pictures from, from seminary housing down in Olive Branch, Mississippi where I'm working on the car and Riley as a two-year-old has his tools and he is working on the car. You've experienced this. Maybe you have some, you're cooking in the kitchen and your little one has their pots and pans and they too are cooking. They are imitating now notice that Paul says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Look at what he doesn't say. He doesn't say be imitators of God as beloved teenagers. <laughs> Did you notice that? Because we all know that teenagers don't imitate us in the same way that beloved children imitate us. Teenagers say, mom and dad, what do you think, left or right? And I think left. Okay, I'm going to go Right. Mom and dad, what do you think? Up or down? I think up. Okay, I'm going to try it down. Like teenagers don't love that same kind of imitation, but they come back around in adulthood. The problem is it's usually after they have their own kids and they come to realize mom and dad actually did have a brain and they actually had something good in mind. I just couldn't see it. Paul says that we are to be imitators. question I would ask of each of us is what stage of your life are you in with God currently? Are you a child? Are you imitating Him? It's one that you see as trustworthy, that you are beloved. Are you a teenager that's in rebellion, that's saying, I'll do it my way? Are you in adulthood where you've come back to seeing that it took a little time? But God really did have my good intentions in mind. My prayer for us is that we wouldn't have to go through the teenage years of our spiritual life. But that we would come at a very early age to see that truly he is a good, good father. And it makes all the difference in coming to understand that as Tim Chester would say, and I've quoted him many times, that holiness isn't actually just a good thing, but holiness is actually the best way to live. Holiness actually is the most joyful way to live. 
especially when it comes to hard things that Paul's talking about today, like our sexuality or money or the way in which we run our mouths. Look in verse 2. He says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the first two verses are really just an introduction to this section that Paul is setting up on holy living. And in this introduction, he's saying that we're to be imitators of God as beloved children. And now he's saying that we're to walk in love as Christ has already set the example for us of walking in love. Not only is Paul reminding us what we're called to do, which is to imitate God, but he's reminding us of our motivation, which is Jesus. And I think that so many of us live our lives asking the question, God, what will you do for me today in order to convince me that I am loved? God, what will you do for me today in order to convince me that you are for me? God, what will you do for me today in order to convince me that I can trust you? And what Paul is pointing us back to in this moment is to say, there is nothing greater that God can do for us than what he has done in the person of Jesus. What more could we ask for than his only son in the person of Jesus taking on flesh, coming and living this life. What more could we ask for? And so when we look for something over and above or outside of Jesus, when we look forward instead of looking back in our spirituality, it creates idolatry because there's nothing better than Jesus. And so Paul is reminding us, keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Keep your eyes focused on your motivation for love. Now, he gets into some very hard sayings here. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let's just dive into this real quick. This word sexual immorality is, in the Greek, it's the word pornea. It's used 55 times throughout the New Testament. I like to describe it as the junk drawer type of word for, for pornography. So you know what a junk drawer is. You have a junk drawer at home. It contains rubber bands, old postage stamps. I don't know what those are used for, but they're in there. Um, there's a pack of peanut butter and crackers in there. We don't know how long they've been there, but no one eats them, but they're not to be thrown away. There's just like washers and random things in this junk drawer. No one ever cleans it out. It just kind of gains more material and you just stuff it further back in there. That's the word pornea describes all types of sexual immorality. It's this random junk drawer of stuff. And just so you're not confused, I'm just going to name very quickly throughout the scripture what that entails. Things like adultery, bestiality, bisexuality, fornication, friends with benefits, homosexuality, incest, pedophilia, polygamy, pornography, 
self-pleasuring, prostitution, rape, sexual abuse of children, sinful lust, even what people would call today is swinging, and whatever else the latest and greatest depraved mind will create. That's what Paul is describing in these words where he says, pornea, sexual immorality must not even be named among you. And for those in our society today who would say, Paul's just not up with the times. Or there's a different way to have Christian sex outside of marriage. Or Paul's homophobic. The truth is, in this passage, Paul's actually pornophobic. He's saying that anything outside of a man and a woman in the marriage relationship, any type of sexual relations outside of that, is off limits. Now, why is this such a big deal? Why does Paul go to this as kind of one of the the first seemingly rules or regulations or things that he tells to the Ephesian church to stop. I think that in our society, as well as in Paul's, there there is a battle that is raging for sexual purity, but it's so much bigger than just porn. Because I, I could scare you to death with porn stats. I could tell you how soon your children are going to see pornography on the internet and you're going to be surprised. I could tell you with how many men and women within the church struggle with pornography and it's pretty similar to the stats that are outside the world. I mean, I could show you a lot of stats that would scare you. But pornography is actually just the tip of the iceberg. You see, our culture is a culture that's crying out for intimacy. It's a culture that's crying out for intimacy. But it's also a culture that can only conceive of assessing that intimacy through sexual relations. And our sexuality is so much bigger than an act. And I wish we had an hour just to unpack what, it, what the human body actually is and how our sexuality is a reflection of our creativity and beauty and all the things that are so much bigger than just one act. But you know, it's not just us. It's not just a culture that loves Fifty Shades of Grey, which, by the way, that was the fastest-selling paperback. It even outsold Harry Potter. So that's who we are as a society. But before we get so dark and down on ourselves, this has been a struggle throughout all of time. I believe it was an equal struggle in Paul's society. Throughout human history, mankind's wavered back and forth between trivializing sexuality and deifying sexuality. And you see that in our day and time today. We trivialize sexuality when we say, on the one hand, ah, sex is no big deal. Go sleep with as many people as you want as long as there's no long-term negative effects. As long as there's no unwanted pregnancy or STDs, it's no big deal. So in, in one way, we trivialize it. But then in, the other, in another way, we deify it. I mean, on the other hand, it's the biggest deal. So now in relationships... Love and marriage no longer lead to sex. Sex, if it's good enough, supposedly then lead to love and marriage. But the problem with that is 
And couples figure this out after they get into a marriage relationship. They believe that sex is going to be the glue that's going to bond and hold the relationship together. And it doesn't take long before they begin to realize that it's not quite as strong as they thought it was. We live in a culture today in which we're confused about our sexuality. And we got to ask a question as we talk about this. Why is our sexuality such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal in our culture? Because like we can't deny the fact that just as human beings, there's a natural inclination or some type of force within us. No one teaches us to have sexual desire. It's deeply rooted within us. And when I say sexual desire, I don't just mean of an erotic nature. I mean a beauty. But at the same time, within us, none of us would deny that culture seeks sexuality in order to find a type of, not even just intimacy, but I would go as far as to say wholeness. Our culture is looking for, for wholeness and, and they're looking at it from a created thing instead of from the creator. And so we've got to ask the question, why is our sexuality such a big deal to God? And just really quickly, I'm going to use two scriptures to tell you why. In Genesis chapter 1, in verses 27 and 28, God said this. I find it interesting. These verses are so closely linked together. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him... Male and female, he created them. So we're created in the image of God. And then look at verse 28. And God blessed them and God said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And he goes on. Isn't it interesting that God said we're created in his image? That he gave us, that we complement one another in the way that he has created us in our sexuality? What I mean by that, well, by that we compliment is just very simply, if you look at a guy, it doesn't make a lot of sense by himself, but if you look at a guy and you put a girl with him, you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense how that works. We complement one another. And somebody giggles, what I mean, the puzzle pieces fit together. Just get really simple. And my wife said, how, how are you going to talk about this? There's like third through fifth graders in the room. If you're not talking with your third through fifth grader about their sexuality, you're behind because their friends are. And the Disney shows they watch are. So you better catch up this afternoon and get the conversation started. When we think about this sexuality, the first thing that God tells us in the way that he has created us in our bodies and in our sexuality, the first commandment he gives us is not go on a date. It's not go and watch a sunset. It's not go and think about how good I am. The first commandment God gives us is go have sex. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I know that that's very simple. But be fruitful and multiply and fill it. What does that tell us about sexuality? I'm kind of being, not crass, but I'm kind of being simplistic in order to get us to see that our sexuality is a good thing when it's in the right boundaries. God created it. It's his gift. It's his idea and it's beautiful. But we don't have the rights to take it outside the boundaries of what God has intended. If we do, it will always go awry. 
So God says to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, fast forward to Ephesians chapter 5. We're not going to get to the end of chapter 5 today, but if you look in verses 31 and 32, surprise, surprise, listen to what Paul has to say about our sexuality. He's teaching on marriage at this point. That's the context. And in verse 31, he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul speaks of marriage as a profound mystery that refers to Christ and the church. Paul seems to be saying that marriage is a picture of the sacred union between Christ and his church. Isn't that interesting? That somehow the intimacy and the closeness and the seemingly wholeness that we find in marriage is actually a very small picture of the relationship that we have with Christ. Now, think about that. Therefore, to bring something or someone inappropriate into that union would be offensive. What if there were some Satan worshipers today or or another, some cult who came into our building, brought a goat, and laid the goat on our communion table and wanted to slaughter it? Now, we're not a high church liturgy. Our communion table folds up and down each week with a tablecloth on top. It's not that fancy. Yet at the same time, we would be offended. Would we not? Why? Because you are bringing some form of worship that's outside of our belief and who we are into our place of worship. And in the same, that's why Paul in 1 Corinthians warns against sexual immorality. He says, stop having sex with temple prostitutes because you're one with Christ. And when you become one with these cultic temple prostitutes, You're introducing them to Christ. Don't do that. This is a holy thing. So sexual union between a man and a woman in marriage is sacred. Because it's a picture of the intimacy, the closeness, the fulfillment that comes in oneness with God through the person of Jesus. Now, I just want to, before we move on, because I spent a lot of time on this, and I've kind of done that particularly because it's such a big deal within our culture, I do want to push pause, and I want to say, particularly to those who are, are single adult, which, by the way, I know we have a kid who is trying to escape. It's okay. Um, if he does escape, we'll figure out what to do. All right? So they probably just want potluck, which is coming later. So um, it's all right. Um, I want to say this, especially to single adults who are in our room, but to each of us. Um, sexuality is so much broader than sexual relations. Our sexuality is the longing within that pushes us toward beauty, toward creativity, toward humor, toward wholeness, toward intimacy, toward family, toward connectedness. And if we we run the risk when we read some of Paul's writings, if we view them as only saying stop, they're in a much larger context within the whole of Scripture. And if we see them as only commands, the danger will be that we will shut down our emotions. And whenever you shut down your emotions, your sexuality goes underground and it gets really weird. And it doesn't work. 
And for us to be whole and to be holy, we don't need to shut down our emotions. We actually need to understand our emotions more. Which I'll give you a secret. To understanding your emotions, you have to actually slow down and pay attention to your body. And when you pay attention to your body, like what am I feeling? Where am I nervous? What part of that nervousness is in me? Is it in my head? Is it in my stomach? Where is it? Uh, am I anxious? Am I afraid? What am I? When you feel those feelings, you can actually come to a point in which you understand what is going on with you. Not our emotions are spiritual because we respond to our emotions, and you won't feel your emotions unless you pay attention to your body. But our sexuality is so much bigger than merely an activity. So I want us to see that our sexuality is it's so important. And the activity of sexual relations is a very small part of our life. Like the world would tell us that it's everything. God would tell us that it's merely a picture. And it's his grace given to us of an even greater, even more pleasurable relationship that we will find with God. So how do you say that? The scriptures say we'll neither be married nor given in marriage in heaven. A lot of people have problems with that. They, a lot of teenagers go, I want to have a lot of sex on earth because I'm not going to get to have sex in heaven. Who created this gift of sex? It was God. And if he says we won't be married or given in marriage in heaven, then he has something even greater for us than the fulfillment and the intimacy and the seemingly wholeness that we experience in marriage. What he has for us is himself. And he is even better. Now Paul moves on, and I'm going to move quickly. He says that there's not to be impurity among us, which is a broader term. It includes sexual lust and drunkenness and crudeness. He goes on and he says that there's also not to be covetousness. Now look at verse 3. He links all these things together. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. He says they're not even to be named among us as is proper among the saints. As I read this, my question was, how are sexual immorality and covetousness linked? Like Paul seems to be somehow linking these. What's the deal? So I thought about it. They're both idolatry. Both idolatry in which we choose to worship the created order over the creator. So covetousness or greed... Is an unrestrained desire for more money or more food or more property or other material things. It makes us covetous of what others have and bitter about what we don't have. And I think that covetousness is actually the great unconfessed sin of the Western church. Especially among the middle class. Because we don't think we have enough to be to covet. We think that's the upper class, and so we kind of excuse ourselves. And it's the great unconfessed sin of the, of the Western church because greed is the cultural norm. You aren't cool if you aren't greedy. We always want more. And Paul is saying to be careful. I'm going to talk about covetousness really quickly, and I'm going to borrow um, our, our Christian brother Jeff Foxworthy over in Atlanta. You guys know Jeff Foxworthy he had that famous comedy routine. You might be a redneck. You might be greedy. If. You might be greedy if you have to get the latest iPhone every time a new one comes out. You might be greedy. 
You might be greedy if you desire to be rich. Listen to Proverbs 30, verse 8. I think I have it on the screen for you. Proverbs 30, verse 8. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. If you desire to be rich, be careful. Jesus taught more about money than he talked about hell in the New Testament. I think he did that because he knew that, that being greedy could send you to hell very quickly. And we have to be so very careful because we look up to those who are greedy. We praise them. We give them esteem. We favor them. Oh, he's a millionaire. Oh, he has hundreds of thousands of dollars. What can I do to gain his influence? Paul says, be very careful. He goes on, and we're going to move on. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. And this is, what, this is where I kind of want us to end today. In verse 4, Paul seems to give the antidote to our indulging and self-serving desires. He says, let there be thanksgiving. Now, before we, before we get into that, he, he mentions a couple other things. No filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking. This is where we need community. Because our culture is, at, they're not just pushing the envelope. They move way past the line long ago. But within culture, have you ever, let me, let me just say it this way. Have you ever watched a movie before? And you've been like, oh, it's a great movie. And then, and then you're like, your mom and dad are like, hey, no, mom and dad, let's watch this. It's great. You'll love it. And you start watching it, and they've added all these scenes. You're like, this wasn't in the movie the first time I watched it. They've added all this language. I must have, and it, it was there. You just didn't realize it. And we need Christian community around us. We need to be careful about what we watch on screens. We need to be careful about the comedians that we go and that we see. Paul says that there is to be no filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor crude joking. Very simply. He's saying, don't be that guy or that girl that anytime someone says something that could be taken in the wrong way, that you're the person who turns it into a dirty joke and goes, <laughs> well, you said. <laughs> don't be that person. He says that doesn't display Christ. That's not righteousness. That's not upholding our sexuality. That's actually tearing it down. He says, don't do that. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. Let's end with this. How does thanksgiving replace sexual immorality and covetousness? Because both of these are saying that what I have now is not enough. If only I had more, I'd truly be fulfilled. In other words, God, I can't trust you. So I'm going to look for goodness outside of my current situation. I'll find happiness on my own. But instead, Paul gives the positive command. Let there be thanksgiving. Now, I said this earlier. One of the problems is that we oftentimes will take a law and we'll say, Paul's saying stop it, and then, we'll, and then start these things. So we'll, we'll take a law and we'll try to stop it and we'll replace it with another law. Now that sounds good. So stop being, okay, so I need to stop uh, struggling with my mouth, I need to stop struggling um, with sexuality or, or, or with all these different kinds of promiscuity and all this stuff in, that you've described. I need to stop being greedy. Okay, now I just need to be thankful. I need to be more gracious. I need to. 
it doesn't work. When we stop one law and replace it with another law, it doesn't work. Instead, C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, desire and affection, in other words, our emotions, they aren't bad, but they need to be educated, not killed. So oftentimes we just try to kill emotion, kill desire. And C.S. Lewis said, if you want to correct a distorted desire, find a truer desire and improve the corrupted and distorted desire. Which is to say that sexual desire is a natural given desire from God, but it needs to be educated. And God isn't calling us to be solemn, somber, to live somber lives. He wants us to live with joy and happiness, but He wants our fulfillment to be found in our Creator, not in tearing other people down, which is what we usually do when, when we're crude or when we're joking. You find me one comedian who has a filthy mouth, and not only does he not have good character, but he doesn't have a good sense of his own self. We're seeing all these comedians now who are getting called out by the Me Too movement. Why? Because they've spent their whole lives tearing others down. And Paul's saying it shouldn't be. We shouldn't get our joy from degrading other humans. We should get our joy from Jesus. And so the question is, how do we practice Thanksgiving? He says we should be thankful. How do we practice Thanksgiving? Listen, if you've ever met someone who is so incredibly loving... Think about somebody, you know, maybe a grandmother or somebody you looked up to as a mentor, incredibly loving. And you just thought to yourself, I don't know how someone can be that loving. I guarantee you that person who's not only loving, I guarantee you they're also a thankful person. Think about them. They're also thankful. Thankfulness leads to love because it gives us the ability to take our eyes off of ourselves and to be grateful for what we've been given. Thanksgiving moves us from longing for the future or dwelling on the disparity of the past. And Thanksgiving positions us to truly embrace the blessings of today and all that God's done for us. I just want to read these last couple of verses. He says, For you may be sure of this in verse 5. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolatry, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's a strong warning. Paul seems to be saying here that someone who practices this ongoing throughout their life without repentance has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. So please, hear me in saying that although holy living isn't less than following moral laws and stopping some things and starting some other things, while it isn't less than that, there must be a deeper desire, a deeper motivation, if you will, for our holiness. And while in some ways Paul is saying that at a base level, holiness, at a base level, holiness keeps you out of hell. In some ways, is what he's saying. And while that's true, it's more than just rule keeping. It's got to be a relationship. And Paul begins, remember in verse 1, with the most basic relationship between a child and a caregiver in order to illustrate the trust that's needed for holy living to flourish. Not just for legalism, but for holy living to flourish throughout a lifetime. 
He ends in verses 6 and 7 and saying, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. We're going to get into that next week. God is powerful enough to save you. Do you believe that he's powerful enough to satisfy you? Do you believe that holiness isn't just good or isn't just right, but that it's actually good and it's the most joyful way to live? Do you believe that God can actually bring joy and peace and hope even in the most painful of times? Paul begins by saying, imitate God. Live not as a slave, but as a beloved child. We're not trying to earn anything. We're living in response to what Jesus has done. And if we truly love God, we'll love him as a small child, loves their parents and seeks to imitate them from an early age. So how do you imitate God? You look at Jesus. How do you look at Jesus? You, you gotta spend time with him daily. One of the best ways to look at Jesus is to get into his word. That's why we've talked about the community Bible reading journal that we're launching in January. You can actually pick one of those up in December for 10 bucks. You read a passage from the New Testament and a passage from the Old Testament each day. And the idea is not to read through the Bible in a year because you want. You, you won't make it through. You just make it through the New Testament. It takes three years to make it through the Old Testament. The idea is to see Jesus. Because we need to see Jesus daily in order to walk in relationship with him, in order to display him to others. Do you really believe that Jesus came and lived this life just to save you for eternity? Or do you really believe that Jesus came and lived this life and the way that he lived it is the best way for you and I to live it? In order that he would save us, not just for eternity, but even for Monday morning. And that if we lived like Jesus lived, if we saw him so clearly and imitated him and showed him to others, that we would actually find the greatest joy, the happiness quest would be fulfilled that this world is on. It comes in the person and work of Jesus. That's why he's given us bread and wine, to remember him. We need to remember to come to the Lord's table to remember his goodness, to imitate him. I want to invite all those who are followers of Jesus, all those who have said, Jesus, you're Lord of my life. I've turned my life away from my own desires and I've repented of my sin. I've placed my faith and my trust in you, not just for eternity, yes, for heaven, but also for this life. Jesus, I want you to be Lord. I want you to be Savior. For each of you who have made that decision, it's not just a point in time. It's a decision that we say, now I want to walk in that daily. The communion table is a reminder of that. It's a reminder of the relationship that we walk in even today, of the good gifts that God has given us, of the fact that holiness isn't just the right thing, but it's a good thing. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite you. Come, remember Jesus Worship Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that in this moment we're reminded of your goodness. We're reminded of the grace 
that's been given to each one of us through the person and work of Jesus. God, we're reminded that the scriptures and our spiritual lives, God, they're not just something for a Sunday and they're not just something to save us, but God, they're actually a relationship that you offer to us to walk in, that you have filled us with your spirit and that God, the potential for intimacy that we have with you is far above anything that we could even ask for or imagine because you've given us your spirit. You've filled us. And you've made a way that we can know you. May we walk in that way, God. May we be a holy people. Not, God, not because we have to, but because, God, we will find great joy and we will find great purpose. God, and we will find hope in this life as we seek to see you and as we seek to display you to others. Jesus, may your name and your renown be known throughout Memphis, throughout the U.S., and throughout our world. God, may you rule in our hearts through faith even today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come forward. His table is open.